Tenenbaum, and I will be having a conversation with Lauren Simkin-Burke for the New York City Transoral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is June 16th, 2017, and this is being recorded at Lauren's home in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Um, so Lauren, could you first uh, just introduce yourself, um, age, um, pronouns, if you want to introduce with uh, how you describe your gender? Um, hi, my name is Lauren. I uh, am 20, sorry, not 20, 38 years old. Um, I consider myself to be uh, gender non-conforming, but since I transitioned and started hormones earlier, then that was a terminology that was used. Um, I've sort of always thought of myself as genderqueer, um, but with a very consistent gender that's slightly masculine of center. Um, so I tend towards not dictating how people use pronouns about me or with me when we're in conversation, but I, um, in print, prefer to not use pronouns or to now use um, neutral pronouns because that's now become sort of more standardized. Gotcha. Um, which neutral pronouns? Uh, they, them, they. They, them, they. Great. Me too. Um, can you tell me about your early childhood, um, maybe it's starting with one of the first memories you had? Uh, I grew up in Manhattan, and I, um, it's one of the earliest memories I have is being in preschool. Um, I went to a preschool that was a part of a Episcopal church, and there was a tiny sandbox playground, and for some reason we were convinced that there was an octopus living under the sand and spent a lot of our free time digging into the sand in, in the hopes of finding the octopus. And I guess we would have been like two or three or something like that. I have no, no idea how we came to that conclusion. Wow. Does, has an octopus kind of stayed with you? Mm, not really. I mean, I like them. <laughs> They're fun to draw. Well, I did just do an octopus drawing for, for friends that run a coffee shop for a, like a octopus barista sticker. What, what about the octopus? Was it like an octopus-themed cafe, or was that your own initiative? Yeah, the, the cafe is not an octopus cafe. <laughs> um, <laughs> a couple of years ago, I did a drawing booth at the Renegade Craft Fair. Um, where I gave people the option of, of a couple of different themes of drawings, and one of them was a, a, a roulette, like a drawing roulette, where one of the wheels was for a kind of character and one of the wheels was for um, an, a thing they would do. I don't know, somehow it, it came out of that that I, I drew a, a, an octopus barista. And so while the original drawing was too basic and crude for actually using for the coffee shop um, when they wanted to have stickers for 
their cold drinks, they decided to, to go fast just because there was the perfect image. Can you tell me more about your preschool? Um, what was it like, like socially with friends? Um, I I don't have a lot of memories of the. I mean, I have friends that I are classmates that I went to school with, starting at probably age two that I went to school with through age fourteen, um, and I. But I, I don't know that in terms of preschool, I remember our interaction specifically. I know I think that I enjoyed myself. I remember more painting and drawing than, than anything else. Gotcha. Um, was painting and drawing something you would do at home too or was this just like when you were in um, preschool? Probably both, yeah. I did it at home and at school. Um, was anyone encouraging it in any way? Supporting mm. you in that? Yeah, I mean, my parents were very supportive. Um, I did a lot of other things when I was young. I wasn't just making images, but um, I spent a lot of time drawing and photocopying the drawings and making little booklets and making little coloring books. And I guess I'm kind of still doing the same things that I was doing when I was three, but I have like more resources and more information. Wow. So you started at three and have just been doing it ever since? Pretty much. I mean, I, I, well, I mean, school was took a lot of time away from my activities. <laughs> and um, I, I, I did get a BA instead of a BFA, so I, college definitely took a lot of time away from my, my more direct interests. But um, yeah, I've pretty much always been doing the same thing, cluttering around and drawing things and making little books. Are there, are either of your parents um, artistically inclined? Would you say? They're they're, um, my parents. Both, grew up with creative instincts that were not encouraged. So, um, my mother loved drawing, but was uh, basically told that, that wasn't like a thing she could really do for like a living um, so she became a writer and my father went to college and studied philosophy and theater and then ended up becoming a real estate appraiser hmm. um, because I mean he was thinking that it would be practical but I think in some ways it would have been more practical to go with the things he was interested in um, so they I think they were very um, encouraging because they had not been in environments where they had felt encouraged just to note, my mother passed away, so she, I, I, I will probably go back and forth between tenses regarding her. Okay. Um, and so you were in school at this time in Manhattan? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, was it the same school? Like, were you there for um, more than preschool? I was there just for preschool. Um, we spent nine months living in the suburbs when I was three and four. So I went to a different school for part of the school year during that time. And then when we came back, um, I started a school for kindergarten that I went to through eighth grade. And then I switched to another school for high school. Gotcha. Um, can you tell me anything? Do you, does anything stick out about your time between that kindergarten and eighth grade for you? Um, that 
school was um, really amazing in terms of how uh, it structured education and um, the hierarchy, hierarchy or sort of lack of hierarchy between students and teachers. Um, so I, I didn't have any grades until I was in ninth grade. I um, <laughs> they did this thing in sixth through eighth grade where you um, they had mixed grade advisor groups and you met every morning for fifteen minutes, um, and then during the middle of the day there was a reading period where you were like in a room with your advisor group doing your own individual reading that couldn't relate to any schoolwork, and then at the end of the week you would sit down and write how you thought you had done in each of your classes and all of your teachers would do the same thing when you came in Monday morning you would go over with your advisor what you thought had happened versus what your teachers had thought had happened and then they would you if there was a discrepancy you were trying to figure out what why mm. every week wow <laughs> what was that like um I mean it, I think it definitely um taught a level of um you know, awareness of a difference in realities and also sort of paying attention to um, what, uh, I don't know, the sort of the rhythm of being in school and, I don't know, not, um, I don't know, I, I, I always thought that it was a great environment because it was much more focused on, like, learning content and being inquisitive and being a sort of lifelong learner as opposed to being someone who was studying for tests and like cramming information in your head that was never going to stay. Mm-hmm. Right. You're, you're not into taking the standardized tests. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. They also did this thing where you, you didn't have science class through that sixth through eighth grade. You had a science lab and you went in during our free periods and worked in the lab mm-hmm. and like worked through worksheets. There was definitely like an attention towards like independence and making students have academic independence regardless of whether they wanted it or not. Mm. Seems like um, you appreciated it. Yeah, I did. I, I I liked it a lot. Do you remember any moments of where like that, as you said, difference in realities between? where you thought you were and where your teachers reported they thought you were. Mm. Um, do, you, do you remember any times where you were like, oh. Um, I, <laughs> I think there were definitely some moments with, um, there was like, we had a history class where, um, I, I mean, I'm, I have a bunch of things that sort of seem like they fit together, but I'm not 100% sure if I'm correct. We were, we were studying um, Crete and Thera. We were spending an entire semester solely studying Crete and Thera. And my teacher, um, her family was from Greece, and her brother was ill, and she had to go to Athens to see him. So we were basically left on our own for a week or two, and we were told to read the Iliad in the time that she was away. <laughs> we were in seventh grade. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so it was like my first time ever having to get, um, like whatever those sort of summary books are that 
teach you like people read instead of reading the real thing. Like I had read the real thing, but I couldn't understand it, so I had to go to outside sources to help me understand it. And um, I assumed that there was some sort of discrepancy between my, my sense of reality and hers when she returned. But I don't know specifically if that's correct. Mm. And um, so this school seems pretty progressive, yeah. in a way. Uh, mm -hmm. What's it called? Um, it was called the day school, but it is now called Curver Day. Mm. Um, what else were you doing like outside of school? I was doing um, ceramics classes at the Mandy Elementary Fly, uh, starting age five through fifteen, um, once a week, mm. and I uh, did other. I mean, I, during the summers, I I did sort of camps. At a certain point, I switched over to doing like more academically directed art programs. Um, I took classes at the Art Students League um, starting at age 13. Um, sculpture at the time. And did you call it the Art Students League? Yes, the Art Students League. Okay. Um, what is that? The Art Students League is a very old arts institution. Um, there are many sort of very famous artists for where their their entire art education was taking classes at the Art Students League. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. I don't believe they give out any sort of certificate or degree or what have you. But it's a it's a place on the Upper West Side that well, it's just Midtown. It's Fifty Seventh between I guess Broadway and Seventh. Um, there, they have lots of different. You know, they have classes with live models and sculpture classes and drawing classes and painting classes and like every kind of traditional art making practice you could imagine. Wow. And so you got involved in that as a young teen? Yeah, 13. Was it a pretty competitive environment or? No, not at all. It was very, um, it was filled with people who, you know, were interested in making art and interested in other people who were making art and it was a little odd to have a 13 year old in class but um, besides that it was more of like a curiosity. <laughs> uh, what was the average age? Probably 50. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean it's, it's, it's meant for adults. Gotcha. So how did you find your way in there? Um, in that particular case the teacher was a sculptor who was also an expert witness in a case that my mother was um, putting together. So she met him through that and then found out that he was teaching this class and somehow made it possible for me to be an exception. Okay. Um, how, how is being in there like socially for you, being surrounded by so many older folks? It was pretty normal for me. I mean, I mostly living alone with my mom and spending time with her friends and for the most part I was hanging out with people who were older so it was pretty um, easy. Okay. Um, can you tell me about um, hang more about hanging out with your mom and friends? Um, I guess I always thought of my mother's friends as like her 
chosen family. She had family, but um, the way in which she interacted with her friends seemed more like my sense of what a like a egalitarian family might feel like, where there was like there were layers of um, expectations and um, like misunderstandings and disinterest and whatnot that related to her actual family in many ways. So, um, you know, my memories of holidays and things that weren't like, we did go to family dinners or like uh, Passover or whatnot, but um, most of the sort of social memories of gatherings were, were with her friends, um, whether that be like she had a house on Cape Cod for like the latter part of her life and when I was younger she had a house on Long Island so that she could be closer to her parents but there's also a lot of time with her friends there mm. so you said it felt like more of an egalitarian family yeah. what's that sort of look like in the day to day when you're all hanging out what kind of values or expectations do you feel in the group um there were values for uh, like smart analysis of things, whether that be going to movies and you know discussing it afterwards, or the current political situation. Or um, I spent a lot of time with my mother, like talking through her cases. So like a lot of my childhood was wrapped up in discussing U.S. copyright law. <laughs> And um, so there's a lot of that. And then there was like this sort of nice, sarcastic humor that sort of underlined all of it because we were all New Yorkers and that's what we do. <laughs> so it sounds like you felt like you were participating on the same level as them. Mm -hmm. You were yeah. really included. Pretty much. Anything about U.S. copyright law that you still enjoy <laughs> thinking about? I mean, it's. I think it's. It's sort of unusual that a commercial artist has a childhood background in copyright law because mm. a lot of it's just not taught often or well um, to art students. Um, so it's very useful to have, but it also is a little annoying to be the person that everyone wants to like ask because you're the only one who knows anything. <laughs> you become the free consultant. Yeah. Um, but I think it's important that people are aware of their rights and aren't are are aware of when they're giving them away and, and not doing it unknowingly. Mm -hmm. I think of a lot of illustrators sign contracts that they don't fully read and don't fully understand. Um, when, when your mother would talk to you through like the cases she was working with, mm -hmm. um, did that feel like she was preparing you for this possibility of being... No, she was in the most part just like asking my opinions. She wasn't necessarily, I don't think she was, I mean, she was in, in certain ways trying to prepare me where I, I, it was drilled into me at a very, very young age to be writing copyright notices on everything. 
and as a result, like my rebellion as a teenager and a young adult was to say, well, I don't. It's it's not actually necessary. Like the, I own the copyright, whether there's a copyright symbol on it or not. Like you know that, I know that. It's completely ridiculous that you're making me do this and like looks shitty and I don't want it. <laughs> but I, I still do it on an imprint now. This is backtracking a bit, mm-hmm. uh, but you mentioned before you got in the um, artist students league. Art students. Art students league. Uh, you would attend weekly ceramics classes at mm-hmm. the Y. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell me about that time? Sure. Um, those were. Uh, I mean, I started out at age five, so it was pretty um, rudimentary, working with clay, building by hand, um, and. Have a couple examples, but my father has hoarded most of them. Um, I have a sample of a pig, I believe, from the first or second year of my endeavors in ceramics. It's a very beautiful pig. <laughs> um, we, I think, it progresses at a certain point to working on a wheel. So then there was, you know, a lot of um, making plates and pots and vases and stuff like that. Um, then somehow I don't know why I got obsessed with. Making coil um, pots, so I would create the walls out of coil and then smooth them down and, um, as a way to like make something that was sort of like what you would make on the wheel, but all sort of by hand. Mm-hmm. And I did a lot of figures uh, for imagination. They were all a little wonky. What kinds of figures? Um, some of them were just busts where it was like a head and shoulders and they were like very um, like non-specific people. Gotcha. Um, Okay. What about, um, I imagine that was a space for you with more um, like aged people? Mm -hmm. Um, again, I don't really remember my classmates that much. Um, I, as a, as a young person, I did not find many people for whom I had an interest in them. I mean, I had like some friends, but it was, I was not like generally interested in my peers. Hmm. Did it feel like, um, you just like weren't connecting or do you know where that disinterest was? I felt like they were stupid and annoying. They were focused on really superficial things and I didn't have the patience for it and I really don't and I still don't <laughs> have mm. the patience for it. What would you say you were focused on then? Um, I mean I was a little bit freaked out from a very young age about work like what kind of work I could do that would actually make it possible for me to pay my electric bill, let's say. Um, but I was, I was reading and I was drawing. Mostly. Um, do you notice looking back? these different times from like the same period of 8 to 15 mm-hmm. did your work take on any 
themes or feelings? Um, Anything? I... There's probably more than what I remember of what I was drawing, but I was doing a lot of drawing from, um, from observation. And then I was doing this very odd stream of drawings that were sort of Escher-inspired. So they were these like checkerboard landscapes with figures sort of coming out of them. Um, and then I was also on occasion doing paintings or drawings based on literature that I was reading. So The Secret Garden and you know, the Wizard of Earthsea and whatever it was I was trying, like reading at the time. Um, but there was a lot of just drawing from observation and like, I guess, wanting to, wanting to be able to capture what I was seeing and I didn't necessarily feel that I was doing it as well as I wanted to, so I was just very voracious about trying mm -hmm. everything. What, um, what, in what aspect did you feel like you were falling short? I think it was just like a developmental, like, perspective, and like those kinds of things where like I could see the discrepancy, but I, I couldn't necessarily get to the, like, it, it had to be like done, it had to be practiced out, as opposed to something that could I could automatically see in books. Um, I mean, I was very young, so it was uh, perhaps a little ridiculous on my part to think that I was just going to be able to do everything mm -hmm. automatically. How is it working with, um, like, the human form mm -hmm. in creating these figures, if they were human? Um, I, I don't... I know that I did do drawings based on images in magazines as, as a way to have source material, but I'm, there were a lot of figures I was drawing that were just out of my head. Um, starting in seventh grade, I was also involved in dance and choreography because my, my school took over another school that had a high school which had a dance program. <laughs> And so there was probably some correlation of like starting to take movement classes and being able to sort of improvise drawings of the human form um, a little better. Um, when I was a freshman in high school, I started doing life drawing classes. Like there was a once a week after school life drawing session at school. So that became a regular part of my life. better with the figure. <laughs> and so at this time between like these movement classes and mm -hmm. then picking up on life drawings, mm -hmm. it does seem like the human body became much more present in mm -hmm. all your day-to-days. Did you feel your relationship to your own? Um, was that being informed? How was your perspective? I, um, I don't think that my relationship to my own body was informed through the explorations of bodies in artistic form. Um, I was just generally grumpy and frustrated with the entire um, puberty process. Um, <laughs> it seemed like a cruel and ridiculous joke. 
and I um, I don't know that I saw it like saw clearly how frustrated about it I was um, it was just I was not happy in a lot of ways um, and I think that was you know a good portion of it of that would you mind digging into more details about puberty what was specifically cruel about it um, I started developing breasts very, very early, and I had very, very large breasts. So when I was in sixth grade, I was the only person, like I did gymnastics, and I was the only person on the team, including the eighth graders, that had any breasts. I basically looked like an adult in that respect, and everyone else looked like a child. Um, and it was just not a very, it wasn't comfortable. <laughs> I spent a lot of time during gymnastics practice thinking about being home and reading instead. <laughs> mm. But I, I tried to stick it out for a little while. Did you... How did other students react? Um, I mean, other... There were some... Um, let's say, older kids in gymnastics that were slightly jealous because they saw like my physical transformation something that they wanted but like overall um, I think people focused more on my like skills and abilities and personality than they did on my physical appearance and you said um, through this time it seemed like reading and was a nice way to recenter yourself, find find some well, breath. I think that uh, I don't know. Reading was just a, a a primary activity. It was a way to experience more than you could experience in your day to day reality. What kind of books were you reading? Um, it changed. I there was a, a very distinct Lucy Maud Montgomery period okay. and books. Like all all seven or eight or nine of them. Okay. What what are those like? <laughs> I'm not familiar. <laughs> okay. So it starts with Anne of Green Gables. You might have heard of that, maybe. Um, it's set in um, eastern Canada in the I believe eighteen hundreds. Um, Um, and it's about an orphan who um, gets taken in accidentally by a family. Like they think that they have said that they would take in a boy, and then this girl comes, and they give word to the agency that they got her from, or the orphanage, or what have you, um, and plan to like switch her out, <laughs> swap her out. So from day one, she knows that she's not wanted, and they. But it's about her, sort of becoming a family with those people that take her in and her relationships with her peers and um, you know through her life also you know going going to college and um, figuring out what she wants to do and that kind of thing so I, I that was one period and then I became obsessed with Ursula K. Le Guin who I am still obsessed with so I read all of the 
At the time, there were only three Earthsea books. So it was called the Earthsea Trilogy, The Wizard of Earthsea, and um, there were two others at the time. There, I think, are at least two more books that were written in that series, um, novels, and then a few sh books of short stories, but set in the same world. Mm. Um, and those are sci-fi, fantasy, young adult fiction that um, I think it's safe to say like is the original story of a, a young boy learning sort of makeshift magic from the like local witch in his village and then becoming noticed as someone who was really gifted in magic and then being sent to magic school where he then went from being the sort of scrappy kid that was like why is this kid here to becoming the like grand wizard of Earthsea mm -hmm. um, there's like an arc to those stories that's kind of amazing he in the very very beginning he um, he's trying to show off show off to his peers um, and in showing off he he raises a spirit who then follows him for like the rest of his life basically um, so one of the books is like him going out into the nothingness to, to like find the dragon to help him to figure out how to um, put the spirit to rest. Yeah. Um, what was what was it like being a young person reading those stories? Um, I just thought they were brilliant. I mean, I think that Ursula K. Le Guin is brilliant, <laughs> and I'm glad that she's starting to get more recognition. Um, She's brilliant in her adult sci-fi, and she's brilliant in her essays, and um, I'm very thankful to have somehow sort of stumbled upon her work. Mm. When you were first reading her, did it feel um, like, were, were you getting senses of hope from it? Was it just exploration? It was just exploration. Like it was, I guess there was also like a moodiness to it that was satisfying. As in, like, I feel this moodiness. Yeah, yeah, it totally, yeah, gets yeah. me. Yeah. Cool. Um, when you say moodiness, is that like? like I think the like. Childhood is challenging. You have no power. Everyone's telling you what to do. I mean, you might be in a situation where you're not being told what to do. But for the most part, you have very little resources. And I think that I was aware of that fairly early, that I was like <laughs> biding my time till I was able to have a little more agency in my life. Mm. When do you think um, you made the transition to get out of feeling like full childhood? I think probably in high school. Like, I, it wasn't, I did, I, I was sort of always like a little adult. So getting older has always felt like being able to be a little bit more myself. And in some ways, I allowed myself to, um, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I don't know whether I'm, like a real adult or like a normal adult and I might always be childish in certain ways but I've always been 
pretty adult like. Mm. So what was different about high school? Um, in high school, there's the like geographic situation of going to school in like a different neighborhood and a different area. I had to travel for like an hour to get to school and um, and it was just sort of put put me in a different place. And I, well, I was also at a Quaker school, so that sort of inadvertently leads to um, having meditation be a part of your life, even though it's not called that, <laughs> because we were meeting for silence twice a week. Um, so that was probably helpful. Um, and I think there were just more more peers that I I had things in common with than I had previously. Although I really did miss the day school in terms of the academic structure. Yeah. Like my classmates I was slightly more connected to um, once I was in high school. Yeah. Um, so the geographic distance, you travel an hour, um, you were still in Manhattan? Still in Manhattan. I, my parents divorced when I was four, or got separated when I was four, so they lived in different places. And for most of my childhood, or I guess all of my childhood, after they separated, my father lived on 90th Street. Um, and my mother moved around, but mostly um, in Yorkville, on the free side. And so I was taking the bus, the public bus, um, down to 16th Street. and. If I had been allowed to take the subway, it would have taken maybe 45 minutes, maybe 35 minutes, but I wasn't allowed by myself to take the subway, so I had to take the bus. Buses were deemed safer? Yes. Okay. Um, did you ever take the subway still? I only, not to school, just like with friends after school. Okay. Uh, what was the area like um, of your high school? Did you feel connected, influenced by it? Um, we didn't, I didn't, well, yeah, I guess so. I feel like we should have been more influenced by it than we were. Um, the school is sort of in between what might be considered Gramercy, Union Square area, and the Lower East Side, like sort of where all those things meet. and. The area that probably had the most influence was um, was the Lower East Side. So there was a lot of uh, Polish food and pierogies and um, lentil soup, very important. Um, and just generally having more um, freedom to roam around mm. was nice. Why is lentil soup? nourishing. <laughs> Fair. Um, and it's cheap. Mm. As a kid, that was important. <laughs> okay. Um, so then, well, okay, so in high school you mentioned that's where interpersonal ra relationships mm -hmm. actually meant more to you. Mm -hmm. um, any in particular? Um, 
have a bunch of friends that are still my friends that are friends from high school. Um, and yeah, so I have two very, very close friends that are from high school. One of them's lives in the city and one of them lives in Oregon. So I get to see them more than the other. But uh, Deb, uh, one of my friends is Deb Von Baron. She is a um, theatrical director. She's the um, artistic director of the Story Performing Arts Center. And we met the first day of school where we were in class. We were both new students in, in, in school. And um, one of the teachers was doing a roll call and said, Devorah, her full name, she was calling her Devorah at the time. Um, and I misheard and thought the teacher had said Laura because often people say Laura instead of Lauren. Um, so I thought that she was calling me, even though she was calling Deb, and so then we met and became good friends. I don't, I don't think that was why we became good friends, but that was definitely when we met. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and Liz Harlan Furlow um, is a friend of mine who's a teacher, an educator at um, high school to reach kids um, in Portland. And used to be a, a lay chaplain, but now it's just the kind of teaching, no chaplaining. Um, She's a poet, too. And I have other friends from high school, too, but those are the ones that I'm the closest to. Is, mm-hmm. um, so then, moving past high school, mm-hmm. what were you involved in? Uh, past high school? Yeah. Um, I went directly to college. Um, I went to Cornell University was originally studying fine art um, in the College of Architectural Art and Planning. And after a year, transferred out and um, went into the liberal arts college there and studied anthropology for the next three years. And through, through the, the entire time that I was there, I was living in an artistic program house called Risley, which is... Um, in a dorm that is made to be like a castle um, and had a black box theater and shops in the basement and um, it was there's a student-run committee that made all the decisions about how money was allocated and space was allocated and um, pretty early on as a freshman there I became involved in the committee was like a voted on like representative of my class there, um, one of two, um, and became the chair the next year of the committee and then was staffed as the program assistant um, for the following two years, which was the Cornell's terminology for what an assistant resident club director is. For some reason, there were some dorms that were like programming houses that were set inside other dorms and assistant residence hall director was given as a title for that position, like my job in those places where they didn't have their own residence hall director. And then we were called program advisors and people didn't know what that was. Hmm. <laughs> um, okay, so you stayed in the 
is the um, arts house, mm-hmm. art collective house. Um, yet you withdrew from the arts program to pursue improv. Well, Risley isn't. It isn't for. It's not a dorm for art students. It's a dorm for people who are interested in the arts, regardless of what their academic subject is. And there, the majority of people there are doing things other than fine art in their in their academic pursuits. So it wasn't really. I mean, there certainly were a fair number of art students and architecture students and whatnot, but um, certainly a lot of chemistry students and biology students and English majors and history majors. Mm. What, what drove you to so quickly pursue um, more organizational leads? It was accidental. Um, I mean, I, it feels like it was accidental. Like, I, I really enjoyed committee. Um, there was like a playfulness to it, but they still followed Roger's rules. Like, Roger's rules <laughs> were like, I forget what the context of the creation of that set of organizational rules is, but it's, um, there was a structure to it, but because the people utilizing the structure were very smart but very silly um it it was very enjoyable like the committee chair um as like a gavel had a hockey stick with a with a lightning bolt on the end and then a fairy wand attached to the end of that (laughs) and then so when you were committee chair you were like the custodian of the, the hockey stick very silly to anthropology, how that came about? Um, it was somewhat pr- like practical. Like I, there was, um, I think, this time in the 50s where a lot of liberal arts colleges did away with their college requirements and let students just sort of do whatever they wanted without any specific sort of base that they were requiring everyone to do. And Cornell, being the stuffy, stupid place that it is, decided that they didn't want to do that, but they would create a special program where 40 students could do that and create their own programs within the liberal arts college. So I was frustrated as a fine arts student. I wasn't able to do as much as I wanted to do. I wanted to take more classes and learn that. And so I decided to to apply for the special program, um, which required me to also submit an application to to, to switch colleges within the university. Um, and I was specifically proposing to to work on a project creating children's books about fine art, um, fine art history within a socio-political context because I was frustrated that sort of art was quite often not taught within the context it was created in. But I didn't get into the program. <laughs> so um, the way I knew that I was automatically switched into arts and sciences was that we got a bill for the next semester which stated that I was now in the College of Arts and Sciences. <laughs> and, and I decided to roll with it. I'd also applied just to like transfer to other schools, but that, by that point I was like too um, like enmeshed in Risley to, to leave. 
so my requirements were wanting to find a like a a general humanities program that I could actually do in three years because everything I had done the first year which was a requirement in the fine art program then got counted as an elective <laughs> and I did not want to be in Ithaca for more than four years so it was like I was interested but it was also practical mm. you didn't want to be in Ithaca for more than four years no I did not <laughs> why um, I think that Ithaca is a really lovely place to visit but for me it was not a great place to live um, there's I mean I think I've I mean clearly I'm spoiled in a lot of ways in terms of like being in a city working with with the resources that New York provides or can provide um, but Ithaca, even though it is technically a city, is very, very small, and um, there's, I don't know, I, I, I found it very um, frustrating in a lot of ways. I mean, at least there was a public bus system, so <laughs> that felt a little bit like being in a real place. But I know that there are lots of real places that don't have public buses. Um, but I, I don't know, something about it wasn't a good idea. I have really good friends from college who decided to live there full time. Everywhere, everybody. So I, I do go back and visit, and that's much more pleasant. <laughs> okay. Um, so you mentioned wanting to create a children's book about art history mm -hmm. that puts it in conversation with the socio-political context. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel like your art was becoming more political then? Or um, how you wanted to apply it? I wasn't... I wasn't really thinking about that so much. Um, I guess my personal art at the time, I don't, I don't really remember... I was still doing life drawing, but I don't really remember, like in the first couple of years, what my like personal projects were. Um, I mean, it's possible that I was just like too busy to be working on. I, I did like summer programs, where where I was. I guess the summer after college, I uh, I did a photo shoot with friends of mine from high school, and then I spent the summer at the School of Visual Arts. Um, in a painting summer program doing large portraits like large charcoal portraits based on those photos so I was I guess still working on personal like, personal generated work as opposed to like things that were more political gotcha and so what what kinds of personal themes were you exploring um, I think it was uh, basically just doing portraits of people that I cared about. Um, I I had a breast reduction that summer, my summer between um, the first two years of college, and I started drawing 
these cartoon characters while I was in the hospital um, that then became a line of characters that I developed into other things, including starting to do fashion, like making clothes based on the, the clothes I was drawing on the characters and mm-hmm. a line of greeting cards that I self-produced and sold for a while. Um, but that was, those were very, those seemed separate from like what I consider to be like my overthinking practices mm-hmm. and maybe they aren't separate, but they felt like it at the time. Do you have a favorite outfit that you created? Um, well, I, I do, I do like all those outfits. I guess my favorite outfit was, there was this, there was this top that was striped. Um, it had, it had like, it was short sleeve, but it had, um, sort of the, the, it came out almost like it had epaulets. It didn't have epaulets, but it sort of, it was pointy at the shoulder. Um, and then, I guess maybe the, the, the skirt was striped and the top was red. And somehow I was able to get fabrics that like so accurately mimicked these stupid little cartoon drawings I'd done that I was just very amused by the whole thing. <laughs> so then you actually produced the... Yeah, sort of... I produced them for... Um, there's this thing at Cornell called, called Cornell Design Week, and um, they put on a fashion show in the spring every year. And I had a lot of friends who were involved when I was a freshman, and uh, I guess because someone had remarked on the cartoons that they would like to do those clothes for their line. I was like, no, you can't do that. They're mine. I don't want to do it. <laughs> so I did it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, breast reductions, um, surgery. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did a, like, not mastectomy, just a breast reduction, um, from, I was a, a 36 double D um, and it was very physically challenging. Um, so I, uh, I had a reduction. It wasn't, I had some miscommunications with the doctor because we got side railed by um, having a lump that I had to have moved and biopsied at the same time that I was having the surgery. Um, and so I was a reduction down to a, a 36C, even though I had tried to get her to go down to a B. <laughs> Um, and then um, years later, I had a double mastectomy. Was mastectomy something you were thinking about at the time? Um, no, at, at nineteen, I, 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 it never would have occurred to me. At nineteen, I knew that I like wanted my breast to be much smaller, but it, it wouldn't have occurred to me to have them often entirely. Okay, so it sounds like it was a day to day physical practicality thing. Yeah. Was gender in your mind at all? Mm, I mean, not really. I, I had, I mean, that's not true. I, I had ha- had throughout my entire life the experience of people perceiving me as male and then finding some marker to, to then, then identify me as female and then they would have this like, existential crisis over their own confusion and then 
dealing with that was frustrating to say the least. <laughs> um, so my my thoughts around gender, like I never went around thinking like, you know, I'm really a boy, but I never went, went around thinking I'm really a girl. Like I just, it always seemed a bit, um, like it made more sense to me, people identifying me as male, but I also wasn't wedded to it. It made more sense to you? <laughs> yeah. It made more sense to me, like, it seems silly that someone would, um, that it would be an issue either way. Mm. Yeah. The way you talk about it makes it sound like the, the creating this, like, huge, massive situation mm-hmm. over how do I read this person yeah. was just, like, that, that stupid what are you doing? Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't, didn't make sense to me. Um, I was in an anti-oppression drama troupe when I was in college where we wrote skits about issues of oppression and then um, performed them for community groups and student groups as a way to try and um, like provoke conversation. And um, I had a monologue that was um, called Two Points about like just what you're talking over your own perceptions. Mm. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, you said for a long time you had been getting those um, confused readings. Well, I guess when I was younger, it wasn't confused. When I was younger, people just, like, strangers on the street could, you know, say that whoever was with me, like, oh, like, what a, what an adorable boy. read me one way, some people read me another. I guess it's pretty much the same now, mm-hmm. except I have a little more awareness and agency. And, um, and possibly more acceptance of it. Mm-hmm. So how did it feel in different stages from when like, you were a younger child through like teens to college? I guess when I was younger it seemed more normal. Like to to be, like I found, I, I was okay with just being who I was and not necessarily caring how people um, perceived me. I think with puberty, it became more challenging, um, specifically related to breasts. That was, um, people had weird reactions. I mean, there definitely were people who, like even with me having 36 double D breasts were, were identifying me as male and then like because of my voice then thinking oh then you're female and then having a whole Moving out of college. Mm-hmm. Um, I went 
high school, I moved home to, to Manhattan. And I started a program at the School of Visual Arts called Illustration as Visual Essay, which is an MFA program. Um, I graduated I graduated college in 2001. I started grad school in 2001. Um, and September 11th was my first day of official classes, supposed to be. Um, so there was this like weirdness in terms of how everyone proceeded. Like, it wasn't business as usual. We definitely had a week off from classes the first week because they, I, I went to school, but school had closed by the time I got there um, because it was, you know, like a few hours after the towers had been hit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess the, the faculty was just really stunned and didn't know how forward in that they did, certainly didn't want to sort of just go back to what they had originally planned to do so I think things were like very open that first semester because everyone was in shock mm-hmm. can you tell me more of their memories from that day um, I had a routine even though I hadn't been hadn't started school yet we had maybe done like an orientation one day the week before I had had a routine of going to the west side and going to a particular coffee shop um, so I went to that coffee shop to get coffee before I went downtown and I walked in and they had a TV set behind the counter that was usually on VH1 um, showing music videos because back in the day they actually did show music videos <laughs> and um, they had CNN on instead mm-hmm. and the first tower had just been hit. Got my coffee, I went in the back, there was another huge television put on, um, and I called my mother, who was on Cape Cod at the time, and I told her to turn the news on, because she hadn't yet, because it was around the time she would be having her first cup of coffee too. And while we were on the phone, the second tower got hit. And it didn't occur to me that school would be canceled, like I just, and I didn't know the severity of what was happening. I was like just sort of in, I was in shock, but I was also just in sort of school mode. Like I, it's my first day of school, so I need to go to school. Um, so I took the train and I went to school and I got there and the person who like runs the office and runs the school was there, but um, told me that, that they were, they were, the whole school was closed for the day. There was maybe two other students who had showed up um, and then I had to figure out how to get home. Um, so I took a bus part of the way, and it was packed, like more than a bus is ever packed, like sardines in a bus. Like we're used to that maybe now in terms of the subways. Like there's a lot, of, lot more ridership in the subways than there used to be. But um, I took it part of the way and then walked the rest because it was so slow and. So so packed, it was sort of horrendous. I'd also left something at the coffee shop, so I had to go back to the Upper West Side mm-hmm. before I went home on the Upper East Side, um, which led me to walk through the 85th Street Passage on Central Park, which is usually just traffic only, and it was like a sea of people, like like an exodus of people, 
Like I've never seen that many people in the street for something that's not like a protest. Like it was really surreal. And then there's like the really disgusting smell, like even on the Upper East Side, you could smell the smell from downtown, which is the smell of dead bodies and burned plastic and whatever mix of things there were in that building um, for days and days and days. one of our classes was an illustration history class where we were asked what our favorite children's book was and I had this book from when I was a kid called The Alien Diaries The Alien Diaries Yes um, by Maris Bischoffs and no one had heard of it and no one knew what I was talking about and I brought it in and I was basically told this is not a children's book <laughs> but in the book, there is a drawing um, of two planes hitting two towers. And this book is from 1985. So I think, uh, I don't know for sure, but while I was stunned and everyone was stunned, I wasn't actually surprised about 9-11 um, in the way everyone seemed to be. Like, And I guess to some extent this book was a part of that it was just a thing that could happen mm. that, that ended up happening. Is there anything else you think led to the sort of lack of stunning, lack of surprise? Um, I, I, I've never been, um, well, I guess I, I've been relatively cynical about American politics um, for most of my life. And... So the idea that someone would take take extreme measures to express their disgust with America seemed reasonable. Not reasonable that that was a, it was a good thing for them to do, but that someone in in a particular context that that sort of had blinders on would sort of see that as an option. That that didn't seem like impossible to me. looks like a composition book and it is the the diary of an alien that comes to New York to study human beings the author of the book is a Latvian illustrator so he was writing it as an alien in New York City mm -hmm. um, but he drew it as like a cartoon alien of the extraterrestrial variety um, there are different sections to the book. Um, it starts out with these ink and watercolor drawn fake photographs, um, like snapshots. Uh, they include like, him going to the Brooklyn Bridge and 
walking through Central Park with Yoko Ono, and she teaches him about haiku and going on the Barbara Walters show <laughs> and lots of other adorable things. Um, there's a section about architecture and galleries and um, it ends with a ping pong appendix with um, ping pong diagrams, like ping pong game diagrams. Like a different... Like it abstracted artistic renderings of, of imagined ping-pong matches. Okay. So it, it's, uh, it's both representational and abstract. It's not telling you a story in a, in a linear way, and it's, but it's, it's beautiful and it's charming and it related to my experience of the world but also from like a different perspective mm. what what specific aspects of it do you feel like were like where you felt that resonance um well I guess there's the underlying thing of my feeling the need to be studying other human beings because I don't necessarily understand a lot of the things that they do but just the general sort of setting of it being sort of my world. So sort of having it represented um, the way the book represents New York was quite lovely as a, as a kid. Um, do you still think of it as a children's book? I do, because it was, for me, it was a children's book. And just because I think people saying that it's not a children's book is because they underestimate the intelligence of children. And I find that upsetting, <laughs> to say the least. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so it goes back to graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, what school was it? The school of the year. Well, that program is wonderful. I had a very good time. Um, it's it's an unusual illustration program because it's not just a traditional illustration MFA. It's open to really anyone who does sequential work. It's representational, mm-hmm. so that could be someone doing stop animation, someone doing cartoons, comics, children's book illustrations, fine art. It's sequential. Um, and the, you know quite a wider variety than that, even that. So um, there was like everyone did something different and did it really well, and that was sort of exciting and fantastic. Um, and from like a a working standpoint, they do a really good job of teaching the basics of promoting yourself as an independent commercial artist, regardless of what you're going into mm. um, and I have a lot of really good friends and colleagues from, from that time okay so it teaches you how to be professional and make a living it also welcomes this diversity yeah. of learning an artist yeah. they have 
professionals from both the gallery world and the illustration world that are coming in to speak to you, you learn about like applying for grants and building your own website and like whether you actually send them out, forcing you to create promotional material that could be sent out to art directors and things that become sort of the normal part of being an illustrator or designer you know, some other kind of commercial artist. And also for people who are just going to be doing fine art, really seeing it more as a commercial art, which it is, but people in fine art schools tend to play that down and then not teach how to do, like, yes, you should get out of grad school and know how to have a studio practice, but you should also know how to like, be able to show your work and sell your work. That's what you want to do. Mm. This is something you knew you wanted. I knew that I uh, wanted to be making art and to figure out a way to make art as a way to make a living. And I didn't necessarily know if I could do that. I never expected for my fine art work or my personal work to be the thing that made it possible for me to live. Um, so illustration seemed like a good option. By the time I graduated, I thought I would be able to start a business doing like, like custom portraits, um, which didn't work out at all. Um, and somehow I, I, I was a lot better at editorial illustration than I thought I would be. Um, the exercises we'd done in, in grad school I didn't feel like I did very well at um, and it turned out that that was more just sort of a fluke of starting out than it was like a innate inability. Mm. Um, and so what would you be doing with your free time when you weren't working on school projects in grad school? In grad school I um, would be doing two things that were not working on school projects. One was um, I was making ready-to-wear clothing for a boutique in Cobble Hill. Um, so I was doing that and I was, I allowed myself to do one like gag comic a week when I was in grad school as procrastination. Um, it was a strip that I called Feinberg. Um, incorrectly spelled from Leslie Feinberg, but certainly an homage to Leslie Feinberg, um, but spelled F-I-N-E, like a place of fine. <laughs> mm. um, and it was, a, it was about a bunch of um, teenagers who were very smart and very um, bored in high school. They were all like genderqueer, generally androgynous characters. Mm -hmm. I had this fantasy that um, I would be able to get it syndicated and then, you know, like help change the world <laughs> in terms of um, gaining some awareness for um, gender diversity, if you will. Mm -hmm. But that didn't happen. <laughs> so so the aim was to spread like awareness 
I mean, I think it was to, to, to pre pre present an alternative that um, seemed closer to my understanding of reality, but didn't seem to be in any sort of medium at the time. Um, I was somewhat inspired by Boondocks and its success and what I felt like it was doing for the representation at the time and I thought that, that possibly it was time that there'd be something like that for um, gender or gender queerness or what have you but it was a little too early. Mm -hmm. Was gender queer the word that you were using? your first contact with gender queerness in those terms with Leslie Feinberg? Um, Leslie Feinberg, I mean specifically Stonebridge Blues, which is really sad on second reading. It really does not have the same kind of power <laughs> that it does on the first reading. You have to appreciate how much, um, I mean it's, it's pretty badly written, but it's, it was so important, is continues to be so important. Um, I read that in a, in a class my second year of college, um, taught by Sandra Dunn, um, and the class was The Social Construction of Gender and Sexuality. So I, um, it was, a, it was part of a, a large list of very interesting texts that we were reading. Um, I had, uh, been introduced to like gender queer as a concept maybe the year prior. Um, although earlier than that, I, I had, um, I mean, I, I sort of knew about things that sort of came before that in terms of like, you know, there's a documentary about a photographer named Lauren Cameron um, that I think I, I probably saw on TV or rented a VHS of it or something um, earlier, who's a trans man that transitioned quite a long time ago. Um, so it was, it was someone who was well past transition, just living um, as a trans man in a time when that was like a, a somewhat unusual thing or, or an unusual thing for people to be talking about. Um, when I was a freshman in college, Kate Bornstein came out with my gender workbook, um, which, because I spent a lot of time at the bookstore, I sort of saw as soon as it came out um, without really knowing who Kate was. Um, and then she came to do the book tour, which was really fantastic. <laughs> um, so those were, I think probably that book was a, a great introduction to a, a language to talk about gender queerness in a, in a more holistic way. Mm -hmm. At this time, were you attaching your own identity to what you were reading? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I definitely, um, like, that was the closest thing to something that made sense to me, you know, gender queerness that I've seen so far. So I was to have at least a start to having a language to, to be able to identify 
Karen Burke Thomas. Mm-hmm. Um, how, what, to what degree was it autobiographical? Um, it, it was, it was all imagined things, but the kinds of environments or the, the tone of the conversation certainly came out of the way in which me and my friends interacted. So it would, you know, some examples would be um, one of the characters um, basically like mourning or having a funeral for her peeps, which she herself put in the microwave and exploded, yet still feeling the need to mourn them. <laughs> and the other the other people not having it. Like this is ridiculous. Like you <laughs> you put this upon yourself. So but there was a like a darkness and a melancholy, but also a sort of sarcasm and humor. Yeah. And another marshmallow. Piece. Marshmallow peeps, yes. The marshmallow peeps. <laughs> Exploded marshmallow peeps. You feel like that's something you might do? Exploding. Well, I didn't grow up with <laughs> well, maybe. I mean I um, I didn't grow up with a microwave, so I don't I didn't have the, the resources to do that, but it certainly is. sense of community um, in during one of your grad school years in any form, be it with artists, um, genderqueerness? Um, when I was in grad school, I was very focused on school, and I was very shocked by the overwhelming straightness that I was surrounded by like there was a very um, like it was bizarrely the 10% like 10% queer and there were only 20 people per class there were 40 people there and um, I was used to being around queer people all the time so um, I would wake up every morning before school I would go to Christopher Street and I would get coffee at a coffee shop on Christopher Street so I could at least start the day off like surrounded by queer people and then I would walk to Chelsea to go to school mm-hmm. and be surrounded by straight meat-eating people. <laughs> Can you describe uh, your time on Chris- Christopher Street to me more in the early 2000s? Um, I mean, mostly I was, there was one coffee shop I was going to, I think it was called the Espresso Bar and it was just a tiny sort of galley place where they had like tiny little tables on one side and the rest was just the counter. Um, and I don't know that it was the best coffee I could have gotten. It was it was sort of an early, it was before there was a boom in the, um, the coffee business. So it was a like barista culture now is so completely different than it was back then. Um, but it was, I don't know, I just, uh, I, I didn't have any really close friends that I was meeting there or what have you. It was more just to like feel like I was surrounded in a sort of queer environment as a starting point because I needed to like fortify myself a little bit. Not that there were any issues at school because of me being queer and other people not, but I, I just wasn't, I wasn't used to being around so many straight people. Mm-hmm. 
just to to even out <laughs> to like feel a little more balanced and um, to come from a place of like reinforcing my deemed normal <laughs> and or at least the kind of normal that I wanted to be um, and to have that be a starting point mm-hmm. how are you identifying at that time um I identify it as queer, I mean, my answer is really, um, and I would have said both, you know, queer and genderqueer. Mm-hmm. And so you said this was still getting this, like, straight dominant, meat-eating, um, grad school was different, so what was community like then back at Cornell? Um, at Cornell, I lived in this bubble. It was a very specific bubble. Um, while, while it was not completely queer, its tendencies ran towards queerness so that I, know, I used to say that one of the things I thought Grizzly was the best at was um, teaching straight men to be comfortable in dresses, which seems like a small thing but radiates out as a big thing because then you have these adult straight males that go out into society in a very different way um, whether or not they ever actually put dresses on again you know who knows um, but you know we did Rocky Horror Picture Show twice a year every year and had lots of kinds of you know parties that involved dress up and uh, the, I guess that it was it felt like a very queer centric space, even though it wasn't exclusively queer. Um, when I was looking at Cornell, and I went on a, it's really like a talk with the admissions office, they um, pointed across the street at Wrigley and said, that's where the, the, the purple haired Greeks live, in an official meeting with possible potential students. So I both knew how I would be perceived with relationship to like the rest of the university, but I also knew that it was the right place for me to be if I was going to be at Cornell, mm-hmm. which I think was correct. Um, how did... So, so you mentioned the, the political influence that just mm-hmm. happened a bunch of straight men going out and dressed as can be. Um, how did low life emotional impact did that have on you um, to see your peers kind um, of stretching accepted boundaries? I think that in some ways it solidified a lot of things for me. Like I I was really more intentionally wanting to not be like in costume to always feel like authentically myself like I stopped wearing dresses and skirts and I stopped um, dressing up on Halloween because it just seemed like antithetical to what 
I really wanted to be doing. I don't want to dress up because other people are telling me that I should dress up. I want to dress the way I want to dress, and I want to be as comfortable with myself as I can be. Um, so I think it it helps sort of move towards that. So is there anything else that you want to mention that was worthwhile um, up until your up until and through your grad school years? Mm, I don't know. Mm, probably not. It's possible, but I can't remember. Okay. I always come back. Um, so what did you do once you graduated? Um, um, I. I started trying to get work as an illustrator and as a designer, and I spent some time doing um, web and print design for a small bag company, and then I decided that I sort of needed to figure out what I wanted to be doing a little more specifically, um, and I, uh, I started working at this place that was called Neighborhoodies where they were doing custom text on garments. And I was a heat press operator. I placed the letters and heat pressed them on. So for the plastic letters, that would just be their entire adhesion to the clothing. And for sewn letters, it would just be placing them for them, um, people who are working on machines to, to sew them on. Um, and while I was doing that, I was still, I was drawing kind of once a day, um, and I, I did single panel comic advertisements for the company, um, for neighborhoodies, for the Onion, for the New York, and for a while the Onion actually produced real newspapers, um, so for the New York edition of the Onion for um, a while I was doing those for them. Um, I. I was working on a painting project. Um, I started a project where the, the intent was to um, do portraits of um, genderqueer artists in New York City. And I, I only sort of got through a few people um, and I, I basically decided to stop the project because I thought it was probably more important to like figure out my own stuff than try and figure out my own stuff through doing an art project about it. Mm. Um, and I switched to doing other kinds of projects, but also, um, I guess, like my, or my, I don't know. I was an organizer for a festival also around the same time, so there was like a lot of things going on. What kind of festival? It's called Baby Fest East 2004. It's a multidisciplinary arts festival. Um, but the draw was the music, but I was the, the visual arts organizer. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you were at least in contact with several other queer and genderqueer artists in the mm -hmm. city. Um, did that feel like a community to you? To what extent um, were you collaborating and organizing um, with them? Well, I guess the I got brought into Ladyfest East um, through my connection with Jules Roscombe, who's a filmmaker and painter. And Jules is the first person that I contacted, like cold, like not knowing him at all, 
to to sit penny for the portraits I was painting. Um, and we became friends. But and he, I don't remember how close we were uh, around the time he asked if I'd be interested in helping with the festival. But um, we were sort of within the first year or six months or whatever of, of hanging out and my doing these drawings of him and doing the paintings. Um, and we've been friends since I, one of his friends from college has actually met one of my best friends. So we're like all sort of intertwined now. Mm. Okay, and then so Ladyfest East, was it, how many people are working on that festival? Um, I think that it was around, it was probably around 10 or 12 people that were organizing it. Um, we were, it had music performances, there was a fashion show, there were workshops, there was an art gallery, art show, um, and poetry readings, and there were probably other things as well, and it was all like over a three-day period. Um, multiple venues, although most of it was in one uh, event space um, in Bushwick off the Morgan stop. And it was, at the time, in 2004, the Morgan stop in Bushwick was was pretty desolate. Um, and so it was uh, very interesting. <laughs> um, I don't I'm not there that often, but every time I go back, I'm really shocked by how um, gentrified and like surreal it is now, comparatively. period of time where there were these festivals happening all over the country. They were happening for years. Um, so it was a part of the history of festivals. Um, we definitely had discussions about um, trans inclusivity and language related to that. Um, at the time, um, probably like Jules was specifically identified as trans and I was like more sort of genderqueer and not, um, but I, I felt like we were the ones that were sort of fighting for a discussion of specific language to, to make it as inclusive as possible. Um, we did put an asterisk, like after, like it's like, it was like Lady Fest asterisk 2004, and I believe the asterisk was like sort of a not subtle way of sort of leading to, to more information about what the intent was. It was my last time really doing any organizing. Like it was kind of a horrendous experience overall. I don't I don't know. Um, it was very stressful. Um, there were a lot of let's say strong personalities, which is good in a lot of ways, but um, with there was a, there were some people who felt there was a need to attach the festival to some very big name performers. And the only way we were able to do that was to 
few the dates to a time that was sort of later in the year than we originally intended, which made certain programming not really possible, at least in the way it was originally conceived. So there was, um, I think, a frustration about how those kinds of things proceeded because the getting the performers with the like the fancy performers was became more of a priority than the sort of keeping the initial integrity of like what we were intending to do. Mm. And like you weren't keen on these performers. At least no, 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 no. No, I wasn't it wasn't I don't have an issue with the performers. It was more the the um the prioritizing the like a headliner as opposed to like being able to actually have exactly the festival we wanted. Mm. So what were these like primary um, programs and intentions? Because you said that there is this history that's kind of... Um, I think it was a... Um, it's a festival that I believe came out of um, sort of feminist, punk, queer music and spaces um, wanting to have to create a space where people would be able to learn from each other and enjoy each other's creativity and um, find a place to be able to show their work um, and not feel the pressures of sort of mainstream stupidity. At least that was my sense. So more of like egalitarian access for artists and participants. Yeah. So you said that was like your last time organizing. Yeah, I think so. Um, I I was very burned out, and it was it was just very exhausting, and I had other sort of things that happened during the course of my being exhausted by it that like weren't that great. Um, they were like so stupid, but like I had a I had like a fly infestation in my apartment at the same time and the refrigerator broke. Oh. And I, the only place in my apartment that had a door to like close yourself off was the bathroom. So I slept in the bathroom because of the flies. There was like construction somewhere else in the building and mm -hmm. somehow they had, it was just all a very sort of exhausting, stressful, not fun time. So I, while the festival was only part of it, um, it was the part I could clearly say like, I'm, this is not good for me. <laughs> to be continuing to put myself in a situation where I'm going to be this anxious. Um, and so, uh, is there anything else going on at this time for you? Um, I mean, I was, I was in like an on-again, off-again relationship with someone who's a very good friend of mine now, um, who uh, I think 
imitated some of the funniest imitated some of the hilarious and they were just doing the not doing thing um and i think um there was i guess there was like emerging college friend groups like my college friend group and his college friend group not because of us but because of other factors um so that was sort of interesting to sort of have your have my social group sort of expand in certain ways um, and they're all those are all people that are like a regular part of my life now so it was definitely a, an important time for for that mm-hmm. you always like to have this influx of uh, interpersonal relationships um, it was interesting and it was fun and it was um, it was certainly interesting to like watch my friends interacting with new people um, where I mean I, I certainly feel like my, my, my world is better for having a sort of new set of people mm-hmm. in it so I'm, I'm glad for it was this also a situation where like queer mostly queer related books all queer books. All queer books. Oh no, it's no, no, no. They, they, even, no, even the straight people are queer. Those straight people are queer. I mean, there's straight people that like are they like they're into. No, it's <laughs> very queer. Yeah. Um, cool. Um, and so, were you engaging with other queer people outside of um, the emerging friend group, or was that? Um, that was definitely my main social base, but I, my, I was, I guess I had other queer friends through, like, some weird sort of, like, nightlife stuff. Like, I've never really been someone who, I don't drink, and I, I don't necessarily like bars and whatnot, but I, during my early 20s, I very intentionally forced myself to be in that kind of environment, at least to try and sort of teach myself to be able to to manage being in those kinds of environments. Um, and I, I have a fair number of friends that I that I know specifically only through sort of that time. Um, people who are you know party promoters and um, people I met because they were doing the door at parties where I was like selling T-shirts and whatnot. But they were all queer events. Mm-hmm. Did you have a regular bar at that time? The times when you did go out and um, have emerge regular? Well, I guess early in my 20s, um, there was this bar called Meomics, which um, is, I guess, infamous. <laughs> um, and they had an event, they started having an event called Trans Am, which was, I think, pretty much one of the first like trans masculine parties that was happening in New York. Um, and then I also had friends who were, um, like a friend who was photog- who was a photographer who was working at a party called Snapshot, which one of the, the organizers, I guess at this point, probably both of the organizers are trans, but one of them at the time was artist trans. So I was often going to Trans Am, and other friends of mine were also, and I was asked at a certain point whether I wanted to exhibit at Snapshot. Uh, 
um, which is the kind of thing that it's kind of ridiculous. Like you go, like you set it up, and it's like only up for when the party's happening. So I had to be there at two a.m. when the party ended to take it down and to get it home. But I went to snap snapshot not just when I was um, showing, sort of as a part of my like masochistic trying to like <laughs> teach myself to be in social situations. Um, but I certainly have, like I said, a lot of friends who, um, and acquaintances that I made in that time. Um, what were those Trans Am parties like? Um, they were really fun. I mean, it was, like, it was, uh, it was, like, what felt like the beginning of, uh, back to end community in New York, but, like, had just been like maybe groups of people but it didn't feel like a community but it did help sort of the beginning of feeling like there was a community mm-hmm. um, and now mix was a very tiny bar but it was it uh, had a lot of character but it was In my 20s, I, there, there was a, it seemed like a, fi- a fairly wide network of people who were transitioning around the same time or around my age. So I, um, so it did. Um, I, I'm not necessarily like great friends with all those people, but um, I definitely felt like um, a more, like it felt like a more distinct community than it had before. And, and now I guess there's this um, I don't know it's just a completely different world now than it was then so at that time trans anything wouldn't have been something that like a random person on the street would have any awareness of so there was something like special in the feel like the insularness of it Um, although I make that sound like I'm being like worth it to work through this period to hopefully get to a place where everyone actually has access to everything that we should have access to. So would, in these party settings, um, what kind of conversations were going on? Or like what conversations were you having? I mean, I think that it was pretty normal, just everyday kind of stuff. It wasn't, we weren't having political conversations for the most part. I mean, it was people talking about what projects they were working on. Um, and a lot of them were, a lot of my acquaintances from that time were involved in writing and theater and performance and drag. And it was just sort of talking about what, what current things were happening. Mm. Uh, was this the only place where you would be able to gather? Um, not necessarily. I mean, it was just a place that was um, it seemed like one of the first places that was organizing for like a, a purely social setting um, that was specifically aimed towards trans-
Christian tournaments. Mm started going to Trans Am um, parties in your early 20s. Um, what do you think that trauma was? When did you start? No, I, I, I think I, um, I was really resistant at the idea of transitioning myself. Like, I was, like, really trying to stick with, like, being just sticking with how things were, but trying to work with my body and figure out a way for like to be okay without doing anything. Um, I had top surgery first before hormones. Um, and even when I had top surgery, it wasn't sure that I was going to go on hormones. Um, when did you have top surgery? Um, when I was 27. No, no, yeah, 27. And then I started hormones when I was 28. Um, so it, it, it was, it definitely, like, I think it occurred to other people that probably I would want to go on hormones, and even that, that I was like, no, I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, I think part of it was, like, just because puberty was so horrible, the idea of, like, going through a second puberty mm. seems, like, horrible. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, yeah. Was it um, getting access to medical? It was for for surgery. It was not. It was pretty easy. Um, I I made the choice to use the same surgeon that I had with my um, original surgery, um, and I think I could have gone to one of the like three people that like everyone was going to, but um, I didn't feel comfortable like going to a city I didn't know to like be in a hotel while I was then having surgery. I don't know, it just seemed like too disconnected from my reality and I'd rather sort of be able to go home afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean I trusted the doctor it was she's a very good surgeon so it wasn't it was more a matter of her having to do research because she hadn't done that particular surgery before. Um, and then with hormones it I was given, um, I think, some bad information initially um, regarding Calamore's policies. So I was originally going to a doctor, sort of not affiliated with any institution, um, who was very nice in a lot of ways, but um, like, I mean, I think I went with him for a couple of years and then I, I switched to Calamore's, which has been really nice. Mm. And so how did you get about um, or what, what informed um, where you went? I originally was focused on I, I didn't want to have to go to a therapist and get a letter saying that I had a mental disorder in order to get hormones. Like I found that really offensive and I was really against it. So I went to a therapist to have a therapist sort of on call <laughs> in case I ended up losing my shit when I started hormones, which didn't end up happening, but I wanted to like have someone there in case that I that I met with and sort of knew beforehand um, to like have as backup. Um, and. 
and she recommended the doctor I ended up going to for hormones. And then I guess I was getting hormones from like a Canadian pharmacy, like generic hormones, um, because they were so expensive. It was incredibly expensive um, just getting it from a regular pharmacy here. Um, and then they, they like were back ordered for months, for like a period of months. And it was a really tricky time because my mother was dying at the same time. So I'm like taking mm. care of my mother um, and trying and like going month to month paying full price for, for hormones that would be a lot less otherwise. And Calumwood Pharmacy had the cheapest price you could possibly get, but you could only go if you had, if you were seeing a doctor there. So, um, at a certain point, I, I mean, after my mother died and I came back for the city, I, I then finally got a doctor at Calumwood and switched to them. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, was your mother aware that you were taking hormones? Yeah. How was, how was your relationship with your mother when you did have those drugs? Um, Which I have... Very close to my mother, and I have a good relationship with my father, but it's somewhat distant. Like it's not like distance, just like emotionally distant because she used to take them when I was young, which is you have a eight-year-old that you're taking care of, so it's understandable. <laughs> um, my parents were very good about being supportive um, throughout every part of my transition, although my mother did sort of secretly go to therapy <laughs> without telling anyone, <laughs> um, and she went through this like imagined narrative where she thought she was going to be like losing losing her daughter, and, um, and then at some point realized that like I was the same person, and um, she was very insistent upon she could see very clearly that I was like in the middle. I wasn't like becoming a boy in like this very distinct way. Um, but she could see how much more comfortable I was. And um, I think she would be really pleased with the current state of like awareness for gender nonconformity and um, non-binary as a thing that was sort of recognized in a more mainstream way because she she was definitely sort of pushing me towards that. Um, How so? Um, I mean, it was just how she perceived me, which is, I think, pretty accurate, but I wasn't, I was sort of not sure. Like, I was very sure that I didn't want to be dictating how people, rep- like, how people experienced my gender, but I wasn't necessarily clear on what my gender was. I knew that it was consistent, but how to define the, what it was in its consistency was not something that I was comfortable with doing myself. Hmm. So in, in what kinds of perception were you picking up that she saw you as someone who... By her saying so. Okay. Directly. <laughs> I mean, she wasn't subtle. <laughs> 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 I 
my father, uh, I think, like, I don't know, a day or two after I told him that I was going to start hormones, like, called me up to tell me that I, he just wanted me to know that, like, I should know that, like, that trans people were probably the best people, basically, like, some sort of combination or something like that. It's, like, very sweet, very unnecessary, <laughs> because clearly I know that. Do you remember the first time your mother told you that? that um, not particularly. I mean, it was um, probably sometime within the first year of my taking hormones, but um, I could always be guessing. So by this time you're in your late twenties. Um, what was work like for you? I was um, well. I guess I had my first. I had my first solo show in two thousand eight, early two thousand eight. Um, it was a part of a fellowship at a gallery called Panorama. And so I was doing work, and I had the fellowship, and I was doing illustration work, I, I got an illustration rep in 2005, 2006, somewhere around there, um, and I was working for the Ecolalian. Um, I did a residency at a very unusual art space in North Carolina called Elsewhere. It's a, um, a living museum in a space that used to be a thrift store. The um, grandson of the thrift store's owner um, decided to and order the things and then invite artists in to to make work out of the stuff that was left over from the store. Hmm. Um, it's been going for about 15 years now. It's pretty spectacular. What, do, what does it look like when you were living there? Um, I, I would say compared to how it's now is it was pretty scrappy. Um, <laughs> it was, I mean it's it's an overwhelming amount of stuff but it's it's beautiful and colorful and playful and um, full of wonder. Um, the scrappiness comes from like the practical things. Like at the time I was there, there was no like central air, central heating. There was one bathroom and it was just like a toilet and a sink on the first floor um, and a shower in the back alley. And the choices for showering were either to shower in the back alley or to go to the local Y. But I was like six months on hormones and I just didn't feel comfortable going to a Y in North Carolina. I would not now either. <laughs> um, so I, I got very familiar with <laughs> the back alley shower. Um, they have since uh, I've been there done sort of a, a structural renovations where the roofs are now actually probably stable and um, they have like multiple bathrooms on multiple floors and uh, are like up to code like whereas before they sort of would, would not have been um, and 
think that that changes people's experience of it <laughs> because there was something special about it. It was almost like camping inside of this like shell of an abandoned space. It wasn't abandoned, but it, it had sort of that feeling. Mm. Um, a few times you've mentioned like silliness, playfulness mm -hmm. as an important aspect in the spaces you've been working in. Mm -hmm. I think that people do not um, appreciate play enough and like productive play as a part of work and not just as about how you entertain yourself. Um, I think that there's like a, people think of it as a, a thing that's just for kids or a thing that's just for when you're not doing serious endeavors. But I think if you include play in all of your endeavors, the, the results are more interesting. Mm -hmm. So in your day-to-day, -day, is this your workspace usually? Mm -hmm. How do you incorporate play? Um, I would say, uh, I mean, much of my time is some combination of play and putzing and puttering around and I usually have multiple projects happening in different parts of the studio um, and some of them are sort of more more in need of attention immediately and some things are more just like me putzing around um, like a good example of play is that last spring I decided to teach myself frame animation in Photoshop because I I became afraid. I had friends who had been given jobs for the New York Times, and they had been asked, in addition to their regular illustration, whether they could do a small, short GIF for the online presence of the article. And I didn't want to be asked that question, mm -hmm. not having known how to do it originally. Like, I wanted to like be able to say, yes, I can do it, as opposed to saying, yes, I can do it, and then teach myself then when I have to do something in a day. So I taught myself frame animation and I realized I'd always sort of wanted to do stop animation, but I found like figuring it out seemed really confusing. And then I realized I could use the same process for stop animation as I'd been using for the frame animation. So I started building puppets for stop animation. And I've mostly been photographing them. But there's like no reason for them other than for me like obsessing and playing. Like there's no like, I've used them for some, for one photo series that was published in a literary magazine, but like for the most part, they're just like the product of play and silliness, but there is like they, they have taken on a life of their own and um, people tend to enjoy them on the Instagram. So then you do have, it sounds like you have built yourself a social media presence? Yes. Um, how is that, and how does that intersect with queerness, if it does? Um, I mean, it intersects with queerness as far as, um, you, know, you know, every so often, depending on what is going on, I may sort of create sort of hand-drawn lettered things as like a part of 
sort of movement of themes that might be like it might be usable by other people whether that's like a protect, protect trans youth image or things about um, uh, I don't know bathrooms or things about whatever like there I definitely sort of put things out there that are sort of related to queerness but it's it's not like an, um, the like it's not the majority of what I'm putting out I'm usually just showing process in progress work things mm. um, I I just did a comic about bathrooms that's going to be in uh, a thing called Resist the publication that was first created to be handed out at the women's marches after inauguration day in July um, and that was done in sort of a, a newspaper tabloid format but it was all um, political comics and this time they were doing it in like comic book form be released July 4th. Fantastic. This July 4th? This July 4th, yes. This Thursday, July 4th. Um, do you feel like um, when you're working for or when you're taking commissions, mm -hmm. doing illustrations, um, do you feel like you're read as an illustrator? Do you think you're trans queerness is that um i'm definitely read as an illustrator in illustration very rarely are you interacting in person with the people you're working with it's all sort of through email it's often through email you might go to some like networking things where you might meet them in person but you could work some, for someone for you know five or ten years and not have ever met them in person or mm -hmm. even possibly spoken with them on the phone so I have somehow lucked into certain like queer feminist and trans jobs without art directors actually knowing that I was queer or trans and or hiring me. Um, I have, you know, a couple of friends that are art directors that have hired me for for publications where it was specifically trans related and probably the fact that they know that I'm trans is related to how they hired me, but that's been the, the outlier. Gotcha. Um, are there any projects that you feel like you've had to turn down for political reasons or it just didn't fit you? Um, I've definitely had like problematic situations in terms of representations of gender where I was being forced to, to represent gender in an extremely stereotypical way um, after m multiple tries. Like, and I would sort of always sort of edge on the very edge of that to be only just as stereotypical as I was willing to go that they would find acceptable. But uh, that's been very frustrating. Um, I've certainly had jobs where I didn't, when I was signed up to do a job, didn't know the full story of what was happening because my rep was hiring was was sort of setting it up and you know if it's a really good client sometimes you just go with it um where you know thankfully i didn't fully get the job i was just doing sort of preliminary sketches for something where someone else was hired and i was thankful because i wouldn't have actually wanted to do it in the end what um what happened to 
I, um, I did Feinberg for a number of years, and I had someone helping me try to get it syndicated, and the response I was getting from the syndicates was that they all really loved it, that it sort of represented everything they really loved from like their early days of loving comics, but they were never going to be able to publish it. Like, just never. What is that? I don't know. So I just, I, I, I was frustrated with certain things about my inability to, like, I wasn't able to find certain solutions to certain things about the comics that I, I so, so I wasn't, like, completely happy with them, but I was also really frustrated that I wasn't able to find a home in print for them. Mm -hmm. I did, I did, they did get published in a, a German zine, but, <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, I, that doesn't have the kind of effect that I was hoping for. <laughs> um, so I, I stopped um, around, I think, 
because the thing that tran that transitioned for me were my hormones, which is my hormonal sex. My gender has been the same the entire time. I never transitioned my gender. Mm. Um, so it would just be like having to sort of rethink those things because they they sort of were created in a time that just had a different lexicon. Mm. So if you produce a man from the seventeen, you don't think you'll be a transsexual? I mean, I don't think I don't know if any of the characters. I don't know if they're trans. Like they were. I mean, I really did conceive them as extremely androgynous girls. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if that's because that's how I perceived myself at the time, or because that's just who they are. I mean, they certainly the characters represented parts of me, because whenever you're creating anything, that's what happens. <laughs> um, but I, I, I don't know who they are in 2017. Is there any media, books, comics, TV, music, um, that you've been taking lately that you think like does similar work? Um, you mean in terms of gender or? Sure. Yeah. Sort of like, like stuff that you like. Stuff that I like. Hmm. I don't know. Um, I mean, it's, I guess it's, it's easy for me to sort of see how certain things are problematic in almost everything. <laughs> So it's not like there's anything that is just purely fantastic without having some layer of complication. Um, I um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, can you tell me about any uh, projects you're working on now? Sure. Any other work? Um, I am working for, I'm, I'm about to have a show in August, again at AIR, um, uh, Portraits of My Mother, mm-hmm. and I've been working on a book to hopefully have printed to coincide with when the show comes out, that will be what's in the show plus a bunch of other things that are made around the same time. So it will have the portraits, it will have a list of 20 lessons I learned from my mother and a bunch of drawings of her stuff that are some things that are just a part of my everyday that I use and some things that I sort of collected into some kind of an archive. Um, I have other projects going on. I'm working on portrait illustrations for a book or two books really and I just did a spot illustration for Virginia, for Virginia Quarterly Review which will hopefully be the start of sort of working on spots for this particular column that they do every issue there's a spot illustration? a very small illustration it, it different publications define it in different ways but generally it's considered something that's like smaller than a quarter page illustration in this case, it's like an inch. <laughs> um, so you said um, you 
to bring with the gallery show is mm -hmm. the uh, 20 lessons mm -hmm. learned from your mother. Um, could you give me a little preview of what sure. you learned too? Um, the, the first lesson is um, jobs you hate are helpful in figuring out what you don't want to do in the future. lesson was um, love is in and of itself not enough to sustain a successful relationship mm. so <laughs> um, probably the silliest is uh, upon retirement one should not expect that the Jim Henson company will make a puppet in your likeness though it has been known to happen <laughs> is uh that an aspiration for you? No, but they did for my, they made the puppet of my mom. No kidding. Yeah. Uh, um, and the, I think the most practical, but also silly, is that there can always be more scallions in a scallion pancake. Always. Mm -hmm. so very important lessons. <laughs> and um, the portraits. How many portraits are there, and then what's the period uh, the work that's um, the, the portraits, um, there are seven of them, and they are mostly based on photographs, some from her childhood, some from when I was a kid that my father took, and then um, at least one from sort of when I was in my 20s, when I, from photos I took myself. Um, but they're... Half of them are diptychs, where the left half is a portrait based on a photograph, and the right side is a replica of some of her to do lists. How has it been working on those? It's been good. I, I, I had sort of um, assumed that at some point I would start making work about her, but I had like, wanted to wait until it was like not an incredibly raw thing to be doing because it just would be too painful. Um, and I, I also didn't know whether the work would be interesting to other people because I'm used to doing, previously, pretty much all of my painting and all of my work has related to working from found photographs of strangers that are just like from flea markets and antique shops and they're there's something interesting about those things but they're not sort of personally sort of related to me it's more just a an extended exploration of people um, so I didn't know if people would react well to these paintings but so far the studio visits I've had have shown that people find them interesting even though they're just portraits of my mother <laughs> so you're talking about um, the exploration of found seems like this has been something you've been doing for a long, long time. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> um, like you said earlier, because you don't understand. Well, the, I mean, that's not necessarily why I started doing the paintings and drawings from the found photographs. I, I just sort of happened into them. Like I sort of bought a few photos at a flea market and I ended up drawing them and then I started drawing a lot of them which led me to having to collect more photographs. And I started a daily practice. So I was doing one drawing a day from a found photograph for like 
over 10 years, which I maybe I had like 1,600 drawings from that process. And I used those drawings to, to make other work. Um, and I thought of it as like an ethnographic study about how people document themselves and how people create a mythology of self and a mythology of family and a mythology of like cohesive history. Mm. Do you have a sense of how you do that for yourself? Um, I mean, to some extent, but I think that it's sort of hard to, it's a little more challenging to see that in oneself. Is there anything else right now that you're thinking that you want to share? that I'd ever written anything about my child. I can't think of anything. Okay. Um, maybe, uh, do you, it seems like working on art in many different forms is like play and it's work. Mm-hmm. Um, takes up the majority of your time. Yeah. Um, any other hobbies you're holding right now? Um, I mean, I do bake a fair amount. <laughs> um, I recently taught myself how to make pita bread exciting. First few rounds were tasty, but um, my yeast was apparently old and it didn't rise, so it didn't make a pocket. And then I thought maybe maybe pockets don't get created on their own, but it was because of my yeast. Um, and cookies. I made biscuits for the first time last week, which was exciting. Vegan biscuits. Mm. Um, I, you know, I make merchandise to like sell online but also to sell in our shop um, in the Columbia Waterfront District of Brooklyn which is sort of in between Carroll Gardens and Red Hook and what kind of stuff merchandise um, well books and zines and tote bags um, pin back buttons postcards greeting cards So like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, a key ring shaped as a nose, yeah. or okay, so not a key ring you store. On, like, yeah, you, it's it's a sculpture of a nose that is the decoration on a key ring. Cool. Um, any reason behind it? I I was making noses as ornaments, and I, it just it sort of morphed into that being a thing to try. People seem to like it. Although no one seems to buy it. <laughs> so are, are the keys hooked around, like, do they look like nose jewelry or? No, there, there's a, there's an actual ring that it's attached to. So you would have the keys on the ring and then the nose would come down off of the ring. Oh, I almost forgot. So you've been living in this building in Williamsburg mm-hmm. for 10 years, you said? Yes. Can you talk to me about the changes 
feel that the changes? Um, so I, I have to say that when I moved here, it was, I mean, the process of gentrification was already happening. And it was very clear that things were changing and they were changing rapidly. But I do not think there was any way to anticipate that it was going to change into what it has changed into, which is sort of like a mini Manhattan in certain ways. I think that it, the sense of how things were going was that it was maybe going to be something like Soho, but that because of the access, because the access to Manhattan was what it was, that it could never be the, you know, the way it was or the way it is in Manhattan. And I moved here because I wanted like more space and more light and to sort of be in a place where you had more access to the sky because I've been living in Manhattan my entire life, and I, I know that it's not that far away, but it still felt like a world away, but still having the resource of all the things in Manhattan. I didn't realize what the change in the population was going to be like, and it's been you know, pretty upsetting, specifically with related to tourism. I've, in the early years of extreme tourism, like when they started writing about Williamsburg in tourist books. Um, I felt like I was like an animal at the zoo and people were coming to watch me in my natural habitat like while I was in a coffee shop working. Mm. And I still feel that to some extent, but it's like eased off a little bit. Um, I mean, it's just a, it's a very unaffordable pe- place for a lot of people to live. And it is some mix of economic backgrounds like within the neighborhood, but the, the lower end of the spectrum is sort of getting pushed out. And um, and when that really happens to the full extent that it can, um, I think that it's gonna be an incredibly boring, stupid place to live. Mm. I mean, I've, I've sort of toyed with the idea of moving for years, but I, I just have so much stuff and there, the, the, there's a lot of stress related to the practicality of making that happen. What was it like when you first moved here? Like what kinds of people were around? What was the vibe? What kind of activities um, were going on? It was, it was this, the specific part of Williamsburg I'm in was a lot more residential. Like we were a block away from a, a main drag, but the there wasn't any sort of, there weren't like bars and restaurants and music venues and there were like maybe a couple of venues but there really weren't that many. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, one of the things that I really loved about Williamsburg at that time was I, I felt like there was a very wide spectrum of gender expressions by people that it didn't have anything to do with, um, it really didn't have to do with queerness in a direct way. There were a lot of straight people that were performing gender in very unusual ways that was just very lovely, in addition to there being queer people who were also genderqueer and trans. Mm. Um, What kinds of expressions would you see? Things like flamboyant, flamboyantness and femininity and androgyny 
and that having that not be like just something that queer people were doing mm-hmm. and that was like like comforting in a way like this is possible like it, it would be nice if this were like sustainable <laughs> um, and I didn't feel like I was surrounded by like people who in all likelihood like were in frats like when they were in college like there was a period where like Williamsburg really actually felt like you were like in a frat party and there were like people in their 20s walking around with their parents trying to like prove to them that like it was okay for them to live here like you were at like parents weekend or something <laughs> it was really upsetting <laughs> and what years did that start happening the frat years um i would say like around t- probably 2010 it's it's sort of mellowed out but I mean it's partially just people sort of getting older like it's there there are there's a a smaller percentage or there's a smaller percentage of queer people a a lot more straight people or like people who are on very traditional sort of life narratives whether they're queer or not Um, so like people who are like having babies and like just doing all the things that they were told they were supposed to do, which if they're happy with is great, but it was not exactly what I signed up for. <laughs> Thank you for that. You're welcome. Um, perhaps my last question is the second best thing that you uh, learned from your mom mm-hmm. that you told me mm-hmm. was that love itself is not enough sustain a relationship a successful relationship a sustained relationship um, is that something you wanted to elaborate on um well my parents separated when I was four and they got divorced several years later and there's no way for me to like really know how I felt about it sort of at the time I think that I was fine although you know as I said, there's no way for me to actually know. What I was very clear on throughout my childhood and adulthood was that the reason for them getting separated and divorced was never about the fact that they didn't love each other. Um, I had a lot of friends growing up who just thought the idea of my parents together was ridiculous, like that they couldn't understand how they could have possibly ever been married or possibly ever loved each other. and. They never stopped loving each other. It just wasn't, there were other factors involved that made it not possible for them to have a successful relationship. Um, and so I, I just don't have this idea that like love conquers all and love is the thing that will make everything okay. Like that's, like love is great and you should love as much and as freely as is possible. but. To think that that it will supersede like the like practical functional things that make life work is unrealistic. Sure. Um, have you been seeing that play out, especially in any of your relationships? Um, I think that I. 
think that I am aware more of the work involved in maintaining relationships than other people sometimes are. Like, accept and recognize that it does take work and sort of assess whether, you know, what your capabilities are and try to communicate that as clearly as possible. Whereas some people think that they should not have to do any work for things to, like, move along. Mm. Which is pretty unrealistic in my perspective. Um, any final remarks? Um, any feelings about um, this interview um, being part of an oral community archive in New York City? I think that uh, it's important to have as many kinds and as diverse as possible a record of trans experience. Um, I feel like there's this, there are a, a, a very small group of narratives that are sort of replayed over and over again in mainstream media about trans identities and those stories only relate to a very slim spectrum of the actual lived experiences of trans people. So while I'm not exactly someone who loves talking or talking about myself, I do think it's important to have diverse representation. So I'm, I'm happy to be a part of this project. Thank you so much for contributing. You're welcome.